All right, good evening and welcome back. I'll move that soda out of the way. That probably didn't look cool. Um, so if you've been keeping up, we started at the beginning. We went through the middle. We got a good idea now, kind of what Jesus has for us in the middle. And if you, if you missed it, if you weren't counting, we didn't get through all 49 last night. If you make it to the Facebook page, I think Miss Carol shared the 49. And uh, as a reminder, remember these, when I say 49 commands of Jesus, these are him just telling us the things that we should do as part of our Christian walk. They're important to us. They center us, they guide us, you know, they put us back where we belong as faithful people. When you're wondering about certain topics in your life, these 49 things are such a great reference point. You can skim them and find something for yourself in every day of the week. Uh, that's a good reference. So what she did is she shared the list of the verses with kind of what each one is. So please go check that out. So today is the end, right? Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, it's not a rapture class or a Jesus coming, the second coming class. Um, but it is going to be a message about what happens at the end and what is it, what is it a picture of for us and tied so closely together only two days later with making the juxtaposition of creation and salvation being intrinsically tied together as we compare them is so important because this same picture happens at the end with the beginning and salvation and the end and salvation, right? They have to go together. Um, so we're going to, we are going to go over that today. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start in Revelation 21. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and pull out Revelation 21. Now the, the end of the Bible is, is, is the next chapter. What I don't want to do is soil this message with uh, a bunch of fulfillment of prophecy and things. Now, those are great messages and they have their place. But what I want to do is keep it relevant to kind of our theme, which is what does Christ have for us in the end? What should we be looking forward to? What is it a picture of in our lives as part of our Christian walk? from the perspective of a revival of our heart, of our spirit, and of our church in the community, why is it relevant to look at the very end? And of course, Revelation 21 is the second to last chapter in the Bible. It's the second to last chapter in the book of Revelation. And we're going to kind of go over, what is the goal? What is the goal of our Christian life as we look towards the end? And then what is the plan for us? So we're going to go over that, um, and we're going to see a picture of what is to come for all of us, and in that picture, it's revelatory, it is revelation, but there's some super important nuggets in there that are going to take it from the future text and bring it right home into something that we can all understand, and it's deep, it's central to our hearts and to us as believers in the church and, um, and some of our church practices. So we're going to start in 21. I am not going to go through the uh, entire chapter. We are going to go uh, right up through verse 
14. <laughs> so bear with me, if you will, and listen to the words of our Lord. Reading from the ESV, Revelation chapter 21, John records this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I'm going to stop there and we're going to speak for a little while. Um, there are some huge portions of this. We could break this down almost, you know, every two or three words. And remember, uh, if you've started at the beginning of Revelation before, or if you've done, say, a Daniel Revelation type study at some point through your studies, what we're seeing here is John, the apostle, is getting a, a glimpse. You know, I, I don't know how he saw it, but he's taken into the midst of the action of everything happening. It's revealed to him as if it is happening at that moment in that time. In the Holy of Holies, he gets to see the end of the world. He gets to see the creation of the new. He gets to see the dwelling place of the Lord. He gets to see, um, you know, the, the, the saints all lifting up our prayers together. He is, get, he is seeing it all. I don't even know how he had time for all this. Much yet, how did he write it all down? I don't even, I can't fathom how he takes, I mean, we can't figure this stuff out after 2,000 years of studying it. And, and John comes back from this and, and, and makes a complete document. It's divine only that he's able to do this. And it kind of makes me chuckle at, some, at, at one point because in uh, verse 5, God says to him, and it, he says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Like, almost like John had to be reminded, hey man, I told you to write all this stuff down. You stop for a second. Put your pen back on the paper. Stop being in awe of what I'm doing. I just want you to write all this stuff down so we can get it out. I don't know if that was God's intent, but I think what he is doing is God's putting an exclamation point on that. Write this down. This is important stuff. 
And in this particular part, God puts that there for us because this is a picture of the beginning. It is a picture of our relationship in the middle, and it is a picture of our relationship at the end. So this fulfillment, this is fulfillment of prophecy, by the way. This, what is happening right here in Revelation 21 is very specific revelatory fulfillment of prophecy. And it comes most specifically from two places in the Old Testament, Psalm 102 and then Isaiah 65, where we're going to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. And then there's a reference to it in 2 Peter chapter 3 as well. Isaiah is going to use an interesting word here. And if you will, uh, allow me to turn to Isaiah. You don't have to go there with me. But if you look at Isaiah 65, like I said, this is specific revelatory prophecy being fulfilled. And I want to make sure that we get this. There's a word in here that is an amazing picture of this new creation. You see, what we're looking forward to as Christians, is dwelling with the Father someplace new. You know, we easily get to this point in our lives, I think, as Christians, where we minimize what God has for us and how amazing it is. We say in passing when one of our friends dies or goes on, well, they're with Jesus. Well, that's not the goal. The goal isn't to go be with Jesus. Say that to one of your Christian friends. They'll look at you funny like, what do you mean? That that is the goal. No, it's not. The goal is to dwell with the Father in the new heaven and the new earth. You see, we're shown the end of the book. This is the goal. This is where I want to be. I want to get to see the new heaven and the new earth where the Father walks with his people, where we exist in worship together. Here in Isaiah 65, in verse 17, you see Isaiah write this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. They shouldn't be remembered. They're like, they're gone. What's happening right now is gone. Can you even imagine everything? That's the good stuff and the bad stuff. But here's the part that I think is most interesting about this. If you do a little bit of an exegetical study on this, you look into some Hebrew, you find out that the word new in that specific verse, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, is the Hebrew word bara, B-A-R-A, bara. And bara means to create out of nothing. How cool is it that we get to see creation? This is important. Two days ago we talked about creation. And I talked to you about how confused the church is on how it all happened. Everywhere from teaching our little kids to us as Christians in our walk, explaining ourselves to our friends. When people ask, 
Do you believe it was really made that way in the Bible? To which, of course, our answer is, yeah, huh? Guess what we're going to see? Because right now, you know, even for the greatest theologian, really the answers to a lot of the minutiae in there are, I don't know. How did he do it in six days? Was it a literal 24-hour period when we use the word day? I mean, there's minutia in it that is hard to, to get our heads around. Well, guess what? He's going to answer that question for us because for believers, when he makes the new heaven and the new earth, just like that, it all gets made. And we get to see it happen. We get to see the sea go away, a new heaven and a new earth, poof, be created in an instant. Because what he doesn't say is he sent Mayflower over to your house and some guys with boxes and they start boxing up your silverware and they get that old couch that's got the Cheetos and the remote stuck in the back and they start boxing your old junk and moving it into the new earth. That's not what he says. He actually says, I made, I created, barah, out of nothing, poof, a new heaven and a new earth and you dwell there with me in a moment. We're going to get to see that unfold right in front of us. That is amazing. That fills in all the gaps for us, starting at the end and looking towards the beginning. Now we get to see how it all worked out. I can't even imagine what kind of animals are going to be there then. If we created all of it over again, what kind of things are you going to be able to pet in that zoo? Right? Well, maybe there's some things you'll be afraid of. That some of you are afraid of spiders. I know you are. Pretty sure Satan had something to do with those, right? When we look into the Book of Revelation, though, when we look at the word "new," here's something that makes it even more exciting for me. See, I love pulling out these words and trying to get the context from the original language because when we read it as "new." It's kind of like, yeah, it's just, it's new. If you're like me, new kind of, sometimes it means new to me, right? It could be used by somebody else. So what's new mean? There's really no excitement in it. Um, the Greek word that's used here by John when he records and he says, behold, I make all things new is the word kine. And it doesn't mean that it's refreshed or a new version of. It's not like there's going to be, like, he took a template of the earth. He knew exactly what it looked like with all the continents and the mountains and everything. And he went, okay, ready? Poop, duplicate copy. That's not what it means at all. To make it new, actually, utilizing the Greek word. Remember, the Greeks were, they were thinkers. They were debaters. They had these, it was important the language that they used because it meant certain things. The way that words were placed, the philosophy behind it was really important. It gives the impression here that the new heaven and the new earth are better. They're actually a better version of what we have now. I had to contemplate on this a little bit because what does that really mean that it's better than. So we'll push the rewind button on this old eight track and get back to in the beginning God. Do you remember what God said after he made everything? It was good. 
Well, what does that mean to God that it was good? It's perfect. You can't make it any better. There's no way to make what I made better than what I made the way I made it. God said, I made it good. All the animals and all the plants, the elements, the trees, the humans that walk in the, in the garden, they all coexist together in unity, in perfection, because that's what God does. He makes perfect because it is his nature. It kind of, it begs the question that the atheist would ask, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Which, of course, if you study a little philosophy, is really a, it's, it's, a, it's a fallacy to ask a question like that. There's presuppositions in this question that don't make any sense because they have to start, it's called logical fallacy. It has to start from a place of logical truth. And if God is truth and he is consistent with his own divine nature, then he can't go outside of his divine nature. So to say, well, God can't do something because he can't do something that he can't do just doesn't make any sense. I can make a square circle or a, well, there's no such thing as a square circle. Well, then God can't do everything. It's a logical fallacy because he's consistent with himself. Like God cannot do evil because he's not evil. He's consistent with his nature. God can do whatever he wants, but it wouldn't be evil because the definition of it would be outside of God's nature, right? So this is, begs that question, how does God make something good, something perfect, but then make it better than what was perfect? And I think this is a great mystery because I think this goes back to what we talked about the first night where our redemption is tied so intrinsically to our creation that when God just desired or thought that I'm going to make this creature that I'm going to love so much that I would kill myself for them, that they might dwell with me in eternity, that I would sacrifice myself, that I love them so much that I'm going to do better than me for them in the next. And I, I don't even think we can comprehend that. I don't think we can get our heads around I'm as God, how do you do better than God? Somehow tied intrinsically to his plan is I love them so much that they're going to have the best of the best. There is no better. There's no way to get better than what I have made for them. I, I, I mean, I, I know it's kind of hard to get your head around that as a concept, but there's just no way to get away from that's part of the plan. This is the way he built it, to make it better than better. One of the questions that comes up from this particular passage is the sea being gone. And this one, this one kind of trips me up. But what happens when the sea is gone? If you ever lived by the ocean somewhere, you really like the sea. Um, and I, I, I want to touch on this because this is important for, for Jewish theology. See, the sea in Jewish, Jewish theology brought about a lot of bad stuff. So remember, the Sea of Galilee was not really a sea, right? It was, it was like kind of like a big lake, right? So, and they were close to the Mediterranean. 
uh, uh, close to the Red Sea. I mean, they had, people would travel, they would see the sea, but what they, you know, equate with the sea oftentimes when you look at prophecy is evil, the beast, the beast comes out of the sea, death. Um, so the new version somehow is also consistent with Jewish theology, where that sea will no longer exist, not in the, not in the, the way that it does now. So however he recreates bodies of water in the next will be even better than the bodies of water that we have now. I don't know even what that would look like, but I'm assuming that there's some sailors, water skiers, and surfers that would be really disappointed if they went into the next and there wasn't a good place to throw your board in the water. So I'm sure he's going to account for that in the next because I can't even imagine that God would leave some of those amazing outdoor experiences that we're able to uh, develop and create out of our experiences when we are living in glory with him in the next. Jerusalem is going to come down from heaven. It's going to be holy. So what does that mean to be holy? It means to be set aside. So he says Jerusalem comes down, but it's holy. So this means it's a new Jerusalem. It's not the old one. This is a Jerusalem that, that God has built for the throne. This is going to come down. This is completely different. It's different from all other earthly cities as well. It's not going to be anything like them. This is the Jerusalem of hope that it speaks about in the, the writer of Hebrews in 12.22. This is the Jerusalem above that Paul references in Galatians 4 and 26. And for us as Christians, this Jerusalem is the place of our real citizenship. This is where we belong. Philippians 3.20. You know, when people ask you now, where, where are you from? You say Pinehurst, Southern Pines, Aberdeen, Foxfire, wherever you are. In the next, when people ask where you're from, there's only going to be one answer. Jerusalem. It's going to be the New Jerusalem. That's going to be where we are from. That's our zip code. I want to get to the, the part of this that I believe is one of the most important parts. And it's going to give this picture of our walk that we have, our relationship that the church has with Christ, how it was ordained from the beginning, and how that exact picture ends up right at the end of our regular earthly existence and brings us over into our next. And it's the part where John records that God has prepared the believers, the church, as a bride for her husband. Now we've all heard a sermon on this before. You know, God made them man and woman. We've, we've seen this from the creation story, that he made them man and woman. They complement one another. We're complementarians, right? We believe one is not better than the other. They have specific duties in the church. They love one another. They come alongside. It is a marriage. It is, um, you know, there is a sanctity. There is a holiness. There is a very specific unity to, towards the marriage relationship. And we're going to see that continue as the Jews are 
um, falling away from God regularly throughout their walk. He'll remind them of this relationship and how it should work. All the way up until we see the New Testament happen and Jesus is going to remind them of the creation story. He's going to talk to them about them being the bride. He's even going to give a lesson on marriage that is oftentimes used to subjugate women or a husband in the church where people forget to read on and show the most important part, which is that the bridegroom lays himself down for the woman just like Christ lays himself down for the church. This theme of the marriage relationship starts right at the beginning when man and woman are created. And here we are all the way at the end. That string is tied throughout this entire story from the moment that he created us. It is also tied now in a third part to our creation, our redemption, and now our marriage to the bridegroom. It's almost, it's a perfect trinity. If you consider it, our creation, our redemption, and our marriage to the creator is a perfect trinity of our existence as mankind, as he created them. And that thread moves straight from day one all the way into the point where we walk down that aisle at the end. The picture of marriage has always been a picture of reconciliation, if you think about it. There's always a reconciliation. I mean, just think about a marriage here. You know, we've got an aisle. We'd have a, a pastor and a, um, some people to stand by and uh, speak up on behalf of either the, the groom or the bride. We have a way built for the bride to make her way down here. We have somebody to bring the bride to the groom. If you think about this picture of this marriage ceremony, it's almost like, take a second, take a deep breath. How could we have come up with the way that we do weddings without God just sticking that in our head and going, look, I keep using the words bride and bridegroom, you bunch of dummies. I'm showing you the picture. It's right here. You practice it all the time. You've done it with your family. You've done it with your friends. I'm showing you the picture of me coming for you. I'm actually showing you the picture of how I built it for you and have sustained it for you. The reconciliation that goes on with this marriage, whether that begins between the bride and the bridegroom before they enter the door or the complete reconciliation as they come together at the end of the aisle. Either way, it's a perfect picture of reconciliation. You see, John uses the most intimate and the most beautiful example that he can find for the excitement, the happiness, the joy, and the love that he possibly can conjure to his mind. You see, this is John's description of what is happening. God is showing them this, and John is saying, it's like he prepared the church like a bride. The bride, I want you to use your imagination for a second, standing all the way at the back of the room looking forward. So we as the church of the bride, imagine the nerves, all of the witnesses, 
sitting here. The person overseeing the wedding would be God. Jesus standing there ready to receive his bride. Imagine the nerves, the amount of love, the preparation that's gone into this. The hairspray, the lipstick. Like, I know how women plan weddings. I sat at a dinner table with my mother-in-law and she planned a wedding. I don't know. Women have this stuff written on their heart from the time they are born. I know how guys are. We'd kick our shoes off and marry on the beach. We'd be cool, right? Um, but there's something about the planning that goes into this that is important. Again, it's like he writes it in our heart. The planning is important. In this case, it's all done for you. Every piece, the dress, the hair, the makeup, the guests, the dinner, the music, the, uh, 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 what happens at the party afterwards. What a celebration. Have you ever seen a wedding where everybody gets married and at the end, everybody just has a miserable, well, look, I grew up in a big Catholic family. Usually it starts out awesome and then there might be a big miserable family breakup afterwards. Next wedding or funeral, everybody gets along. But you know the theme. The theme is everybody leaves the wedding and they show up somewhere where it's the ultimate celebration. The bride looks forward the groom's looking back at the bride, all dressed up and ready to go. In this case, the groom's done the work. And he looks back down that aisle and is like, that is perfect. That's what I said on my wedding day too. That is perfect. Right? He's looking down that aisle. He's all dressed up, ready to present herself. But in this case, it's Christ who made the bride beautiful. The nervousness and anticipation, it's been planned for so long, many a millennia. The catering's all been set up, the church, the band that we talked about. In this case, man, the bride just keeps messing up. And she can't stop tripping out of her shoes and over her dress and saying things that aren't right. She just can't get it right. But, you see, the groom had it planned out all along, so it'll be perfect. He did all the planning and all the work so that she didn't have to worry about it. All she had to worry about was making it to the groom. Perfectly since the beginning of time. He knew exactly what the bride needed to complete her. Exactly what she wanted, even when she didn't know. And in order for the bride to be ready, he would need to send the perfect wedding planner himself. So, you know, we've I've talked about this. If you've ever been to a wedding, you know that nothing else matters that day. Nothing, right? You're not thinking about the car payment that you missed or, or you're not thinking about uh, other stressors in your life. I mean, they're exciting. They're fun. Uh, Last wedding we went to was last year, young couple, friends of ours, and, and we're not even super intimately close to them, but good friends. So we were, you know, the, the not family friends that are everybody else's family. So you oddly sit on the outside, shaking hands with people you don't know. And uh, you can't help once that music starts. What is that song called? It's the, the wedding march or the wedding march. What? That's it. Like your heart, your brain, it clicks right in a wedding mode. Ooh, here it comes. What does everybody do? 
they all turn and look. What do they want to see? They want to see that pretty girl standing at the end. All the plans fall into place perfectly. All eyes are on the bride. Remember, they rejoice in heaven for us when we're saved. It's like all eyes are on you. Can you imagine that? God allows all of heaven to look at you and be like, party! Because you were saved. He's happy for us. Just like that bride, everybody turns and looks and is like, yeah! Right? They anxiously await the two coming down to the end and standing at the altar together. It's the perfect picture of God and His people being reconciled to one another in that moment. There's no other description or picture that makes it better than the wedding ceremony. And He keeps telling us this and we keep forgetting. He prepared the church for this moment through His saving grace, through His justification, through His propitiation. He glorified the church as a final step and bringing her into the presence of the Father as if the bride has finished all the necessary steps to get to the groom and be handed over for the perfect unity forever and ever in heaven. It's such an amazing, beautiful picture of what happens in the end. And like I said, afterwards there's a party I listened to a sermon series recently that's, man, it's got my brain just thinking about what happens next. Um, For years, Carol and I have been listening to Mark Driscoll. If you followed Mark at all, he's uh, at Tumultuous Church a while back out in Seattle, called Mars Hill. Now he's moved to Tempe, and my oldest daughter attended his church for a while. He's a, he's a very smart, deep-thinking, well-read guy. And uh, he did a sermon series on heaven, which is a sermon series not gone over very often. What does heaven look like? And I won't get into a pile of Bible references, but he lays out the story of what does it look like in heaven? Of course, for the non-believer, they're like, well, I want to go to heaven. You know, like a cherub, I get a little set of wings with a harp or a bow and arrow, and I sit on a little cloud, and I'm naked. It'd be cold up there. Boring. Right? That's like, that's what your atheist friends say. I'd rather party down in hell than be up there sitting on that little cloud. Newsflash, no party in hell. The party's up there. The party is up there. If you're not going to be in a cloud, you're going to be on earth. And there are going to be things that are very important. You see, we are built in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, which means we have attributes that are like God, which means we're already existing in a world where those attributes are part of who we are. We have music as part of our talent. We will be singing, playing music, developing new instruments, technology. Who knows what technology would look like? And we have the internet. You can see the other side of the world in an instant right now. Imagine what the human mind can do in perfection. I mean, the, I, I don't know how the internet works. I turn on my phone. It just happens. It's magic. Imagine what it'll look like then. Do I just close my eyes and like, hey, Carol, I'm in Australia right now. And like I can see her. 
What are you cooking for dinner? <laughs> I, 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 what will transportation look like? What will the animals be like that we exist? How tall can you build a building when you're an architect who lives in perfection? I, I, what will cities look like? We will create. We'll, we're, we're built to work the earth. I would imagine we will still work. Can you imagine how amazing things will look? We were built to be creative people. We were built to enjoy fellowship with one another. And that fellowship turns out, works out well when we're all singing and partying and having fun and hugging on one another and high-fiving and enjoying sports and enjoying entertainment and movies. You think IMAX is cool? I wonder how big the movie screen in heaven is, right? You could probably sit in Maine and watch the big screen in England. It's going to be awesome. Why? Because God built us to be creative, amazing creatures. It's us that screwed it up or we'd be seeing it already. Heaven's going to be an amazing place where we exist dwelling with our Father who loves us in the midst of a creative world where we enjoy time with one another. There's no party in hell. The party's up in heaven. That's it. Right? In verse 3 of chapter 21 of Revelation... He talks about the dwelling place. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So the dwelling place here is like his tabernacle, where he lives. It is with man. So what this is showing is God's desire and man's ultimate purpose. You see, God designed mankind for fellowship with him. It's what he wanted. Imagine for a moment that you are God's desire. You see, this verse is saying that. It's saying that you are God's desire. He, in his creation, had a desire to have you dwell with him in the holiest of all places ever. The entire plan from the foundations of the earth The dinosaurs, the whales, sharks, storms, pain, happiness, sickness, kids, school, church, music, art, etc. are all intricately a part of God's desire to be with the one he loves. You. Then we have man's purpose. You see, we wrongly state, as I brought up earlier, that when we die, that we want to be with Jesus. Now, that's, it's true. We will be with Jesus. And that's good. And Jesus is God. I don't want to separate him from the Trinity, but remember, the ultimate plan is to be with the Father. The entire reason Jesus came for us is to reconcile us to him, the Father. Check this out. John 14. John chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These are the words of Jesus. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus replied to him and said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Gosh, these guys were dummies sometimes, weren't they? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is a really important passage when it comes to kind of getting your head around that. But if Jesus is God, and I'm in heaven, and I'm with Jesus, then I'm with the Father. Yes and no. Because remember, God is a trinity. So Jesus is fully Jesus, fully man, and he's fully God. But we still have the Father, God, who's fully the Father and fully God. You see, remember, mankind didn't exist except for in the garden where God was able to walk with them somehow in the mist. Since the fall, they have not seen the Father. Remember, he has to hide his glory. We can't see it because of our death and our sin. We're unable to be there in that existence with him, dwelling with him. But in the new heaven and the new earth, we will. I don't know what that glory will look like, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be so amazing that you won't even need the sun for the light. Remember, in the beginning, when the heaven and the earth is happening, what happened before the sun? It was the, the light of God that shone on the earth that kept everything light. Again, a little hard to kind of get your head around, but Amazing, nonetheless, that, remember, this is our goal. This is why this is important. People will ask you, revived Christians, why? Why are you telling me about this guy, Jesus? What difference does it make? So, okay, where do I go when I die? Do I just go sit on that little cloud like a cherubim, strumming a harp, shooting arrows at people on Valentine's Day? No. No, you don't. You go to be with the Father, the most amazing place ever thought of by the most amazing holy being in existence who's going to create a place that's special and unique just for you where the deepest of your desires and the wildest dreams and all your creative ability can be manifested in ways that you won't even be able to imagine. We're going to sing Christmas songs all the time, just like that movie Elf. The songs we will sing are songs we will all know. We'll just show up in the room and start singing together. 
And we will party. And we will love each other. It'll be amazing. Spurgeon said this, I do not think the glory of Eden lay in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. I, when I read this, that kind of gives me shivers because we set that aside. Adam got to walk in the garden with the Father, with the Creator. Hard to imagine. Adam's highest privilege Yesterday he was dirt. Today he exists with the holy. Tomorrow he's dirty. Next week he gets to walk with heaven in the garden again. He makes all things new. No decay, no death, no pain, no entropy. Everything is perfect and will stay perfect for eternity. Not like now where we argue over who's going to get voted for. We see the political decay of our country or the moral decay, the moral fiber of our world spiraling out of control into just a, a complete mess where you can't even fathom that people wouldn't think that a child growing inside of a womb is even worth the consideration of life. Those things are all going to be gone. Verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. He's going to talk about it being done. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The thirsty, he's going to give water without payment. The one who conquers have his heritage. And then he's going to talk about some sins. It's a picture of completeness. See, there's no other chances at this point. He just said it's done. He started it. He ended it. It's now complete. There have never been any other chances. And that's what unbelievers don't get. So there's only one chance. And that's why a revival is so important. Because if your heart isn't on fire to share the gospel with somebody in your life today or this week or somebody that you know, is in your life that doesn't know the Lord or is walking away, the completeness comes in the moment that they pass on to the next. And for them, they will fall into this category. And that should scare the hell out of you. There's only one answer, only one way, and only one Savior. There's only one plan, only one God, only one Father. Ephesians 1.10 is fulfilled in this when it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth into him. 
He's going to gather them. He's going to take them with him and everything else left behind. See all the outliers that are mentioned in here. The cowardly, the faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars. Their portion is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. I never understood like fire and brimstone teaching. I, I never got it. I never understood how somebody fervently telling you that without repentance you're going to go to hell makes sense because it's hard for people to digest because people don't like bad news. That's true. It might not be a technique that's good for use on every crowd, but it's true. There might be other ways to reach people, reminding them that they do live in their sin, but it's true. You see, when people aren't reminded of these things, and God makes it very clear in the text here, people don't know where to put themselves when they're sinners. What does it mean to be a sinner? That is the question. If there's not a line drawn and there's not rules made and there's not some sort of boundary or guideline or guardrail, then what is sin? And this is where liberal theology has crept its way into the church and is tearing it absolutely apart into a deep, dark world of universal belief where it doesn't matter who you sleep with or when or who you kill and when, and you can still go be with God. Horse poop. It's not true. People are going to hell for their sins. They need Jesus, and they need to repent. Period. That's not a fire and brimstone message. That's a message of hope. That means Jesus loved you so much when you were a murderer that he came to save you from it. That means Jesus loved you, drunkard, so much that he came to take you out of it. That means Jesus loved you so much, person who questions the existence of God in your foolishness, that he came to enlighten you so that you might see him in your life. And without him, you end up being one of these, thrown into the lake of fire. That's it. That is the message. Sorry, it's tough. I didn't write it. I'm just relaying the message. All these here, they die in their sin. I just read it for you. Detestable. It's the same Greek root word from Romans 2.22 as the word used to commit adultery. <clears throat> Here's what's important about adultery. We just got done painting this amazing picture of a wedding. So God is standing up here. He sends Jesus down that aisle to redeem that bride. And that bride is cheating on him and continuing to cheat on him, and defiling herself, and turning away from him. Now, I don't know about you, but if it were my little brain, very slow to forgive, angry, standing up here, and I looked down that aisle and saw my future bride, and saw the sin inside of her, and saw her laying with somebody at the back, I wouldn't want to be with them. I don't know how he did it. 
He loved us so much that even though he's able to see that, he still sends Jesus down the aisle. And Jesus goes, you know what? Turn from that and turn to me. I'm going to take care of this with the Father for you. But unless we know what the awful thing is that we're doing, how do we know? Turn from what, God? Turn from what, Jesus? What I'm doing feels good. What I'm doing tastes good, looks good, makes me happy. You don't know what you're talking about. There's no you. See, in the midst of the Father standing all the way here at the end, preparing the wedding, spending all the money, spending all the time, taking all the risk, putting it all together, the music is playing, the people are here, the saints are ready to sing joy, the after party's ready to go, the bride is at the back, cheating on the husband, and he says, hey, Jesus, go down there and fix that. And he does. He fixes it. But he doesn't just fix it. Remember, he doesn't just fix it in a way that God standing at the end of the aisle goes, okay, it's better now. What happens in the new earth? He forgot about it. It's all gone. All of those things that happen are gone. Committing adultery. That's the picture is to commit adultery. That would ruin, it ruins marriages. Right? You don't have a Jesus to step in between your marriage, you need one. The wedding feast is not the same when the bride has been caught in adultery, especially sexually immorality. You know, sexually immoral in this specific set of verses is that word, porneos. It's where we get the word pornography. It's the word to describe immoral. Fornicators, so that means people having sexual relationships outside of their marriage. There's another word, it, it's called whoremongers, big long word, sexually immoral, and homosexuality. And some would say context is king on this, but in almost every single way that this is used consistently throughout, you can't pick one of those five and say, well, he actually didn't mean this one, he meant that one. He actually means all of them. He, he, he's kind of saying, look, all these things, you defile the temple that I made for you. You're ruining it. I made this for your spirit to dwell in while you were there to have that fellowship and creative spirit, and you are ruining it with what you do physically with your body. It's funny because when you go all the way back to Romans 2, right? What's the first one that Paul mentions? It's the one where we defile our own body. And we all do it. We all do it in some sort of way. Those who willingly disbelieved, murdered, or defiled themselves willingly will not be in his presence. There is no universalism. Jesus came to die for all. He only died for those who choose him. I worked that out for some people right there. We can talk afterwards. Then after that, John's going to go on to describe a picture of the bride in the city of Jerusalem before telling us who gets into this amazing place where God dwells with his people, with his bride. See, in verse 27, and we didn't make it that far, but uh, I'll just speed you up a little bit. 
He talks about those written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or farce, but those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who's the book? Who's the Lamb? Who's the book? Who's the Lamb? So it's Jesus that writes your name in the book of life and presents it to the Father. The word life here is zeo. It's existence in Greek. The book that says we exist. That's what the book is. I want you to read this picture. This is new heaven and a new earth. As if all of the other things no longer exist or matter. It's only us who gets to be with the Father. I think there's something to be said about in all of us, when we live in that sin, we make something matter more than God to make ourselves feel like we matter, whether it be substances or sexual or psychological or any vices that we have. This word, zeo, existence, when the new heaven and the new earth happen, those who did not go with Christ, they don't matter anymore. Luke 10.20 Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Amazing, isn't it? See, this is the end for us as I wrap up to be with the Father. The security that all my children in my hope will live in eternity with Him is enough for me to want to preach this gospel good news as loudly as I can and as often as I can. I'm not a full-time preacher. I was asked to do this. My job is to preach the gospel. My profession is something completely different. My job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when, Christians, will this revival grab hold of your heart? When will it? When will it grab hold of your heart and your soul and cause you to exclaim his name to everyone you know so that they too will know that you can dwell with the Father in eternity? See, this is our purpose. This is the end, to love him, to preach him, to share him, and eventually to dwell with him. And that is the end. You can come up. I kind of got into something a little bit early last night because I started talking about Richard Wormbrand and his work in Romania and Tortured for Christ and then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran minister, because I got on a tangent, got off my notes. But I am encouraged to remind you that as we look forward to the end, it's going to be a bumpy road. It's going to be a rocky, rocky, bumpy, sometimes horrible road. But there is hope for us. If there's anything that my hope for you is, is that in the last three hours that you've listened to me run on at the mouth, that there's been some pearl that you're able to take with you and use as a tool so that when you're sharing the gospel with somebody this week or next, this month or next, 
that it gives you some leverage in sharing your hope with them. You see, I'm not one of these guys that likes sharing my testimony with people. I will. I'll give the abridged version. Here's what I think is the problem with the testimony. What happened to me was, where I started out was, I wasn't walking with the Lord. I grew up in this church setting. I didn't believe. You catching a common theme here? See, the testimony always begins with I. You see, the salvation story starts with God. And the center of it's Jesus Christ. So when people ask you, how has your marriage lasted so long? Well, Jesus made it last so long. You ready to hear my testimony? See, Jesus is your testimony. Because we're looking forward to being with the Father. Because he's got an amazing plan for us. So when you share this week, remember, make that the center of your prayer. The center of your heart. I'm hopeful for this church. You have loved on my family. And we love you. Pray with me. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for these last three nights of prayer and of worship and of word. We just ask, Lord, that everything we've done here is a sweet incense to you. That we've pulled directly from the word that you have given us, a means to draw ourselves near to you. As you proclaim it to, Tim to Timothy, that it's, it is breathed on us, the theonustos, you breathe your soul into us, Lord, that we allow you to fill us, that your Holy Spirit would stir inside of us, that we would honor you and obey you in that, and that we would reach our community that we would pray for one another in your name, Lord. That this church would be used, not necessarily to fill it up. It doesn't matter how many people sit in here on Sunday, Lord. That we realize that you should be using these people, that we should be taking your word out into the streets. That without you, Lord, they are cast, cast away and forgotten, no longer exist. We want them there, Lord. We want them at the wedding party. We ask that you help us. Help us to show them how to get there through our words, through our actions, through our deeds. And if it be your will, through this place, God. Thank you. Thank you for who you are. And thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.